Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is George Cooper. I'm a medical writer and podcast host. And today I'm pleased to be bringing you an overview of the use of echocardiography for diagnosing obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or HCM. Before we start, a few housekeeping notes. This is a medical education podcast that has been sponsored by Myocardia and Bristol Myers Squibb. Throughout this podcast, we aim to give an overview of HCM, how HCM is typically diagnosed, and discuss best practice for using echocardiography when diagnosing obstructive HCM. I am delighted to introduce Professor Fabian Knebel, who is head of the cardiology department at the Zana Clinic in Berlin and Senior Consultant at the Department of Cardiology and Angiology of the Charité Campus Mitte Berlin. Pranessa Kneibel, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you on and we're very much looking forward to this discussion. Before we get into echocardiography, I think it would be a good idea to start with some of the basics. So we'll briefly touch upon HCM as a whole. First of all, what is HCM and what causes HCM? So HCM is a rare disease um, that is characterized by an increased wall thickness of the left ventricle of the human heart. And it is a little bit tricky because we have different phenotypes of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We have patients who have only got a very mild hypertrophy and we have other patients who have a very uh, extensive hypertrophy. And we uh, differentiate between two different forms of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. One form is uh, with obstruction and the other form is without obstruction. And clearly you can understand that a patient who starts without an obstruction can develop obstruction over time when LV hypertrophy is increasing. And what are the symptoms? How do the symptoms manifest in the patients of HCM? So the symptoms... um, clearly depend on the degree of LV hypertrophy. And if we recall what hypertrophy leads to, first of all, it leads to an increased uh, wall thickness and a stiffness of the left ventricle. That means the patient starts with getting symptoms at physical exertion. So that means shortness of breath when undertaking a physical exercise. And when LV wall thickness increases over time, the patient can develop um, outflow tract obstruction, and that further um, leads to shortness of breath and even up to syncope, so um, loss of consciousness um, after physical exertion. And the next mechanism that makes symptoms in the patient is that in some cases, the mitral valve can be affected and will cause mitral regurgitation and also mitral regurgitation is a further factor that can lead to shortness of breath. So you can see it's a complex pathophysiology. So you mentioned the symptoms there, obviously um, key to the diagnosis, which we'll, we'll come on to. And you said that this condition is very rare. How, how rare are we talking? Yeah, it's uh, believed in the past that it's a very rare disease of one to 100,000 um, um, inhabitants. But now we learned from genetic analysis that in up to one to 400 persons have genetic changes that can lead to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And if you imagine one to 400, that would be if you fly in a big aeroplane, um, one person sitting there would potentially 
be affected by hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In most cases, the patients do not know that they have this genetic mutation leading to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I understand. I mean, it sounds like a, a very dangerous condition if left undiagnosed. What, what can it potentially lead to if HCM is left undiagnosed? That's an interesting question because the question is, what do people die of when they have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? One cause of death would be sudden cardiac death. That means the patients develop um, lethal rhythm disturbances, ventricular tachyarrhythmias that can lead to death. And the second um, cause of death or what the people will suffer from is heart failure in end stages. So in the end stage of the disease. So it is a dangerous disease and it is carried in families. And in some families, people report, okay, uh, my relative died of an unknown cause. It, maybe it was myocardial infarction. So sometimes it's not really clear um, in retrospect what people die of. So it is important to make a genetic diagnosis and to really know if the disease is present or not. You mentioned the symptoms, just their shortness of breath and dizziness. How Are there any symptoms that are specific to HCM that separate it from other cardiac conditions? Or is it just something in this area that is it's difficult to differentiate from? No. So unfortunately, we do, do not have a single condition that is clearly pathognomonic for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy um, because all the symptoms I have mentioned before can also be present in patients with heart failure of other causes. For example, after myocardial infarction, dilated cardiomyopathy and other diseases. So it is very hard to make the diagnosis by asking the patient history alone. I understand. Now we're going to talk shortly about echocardiography for HCM diagnosis in a bit more detail. However, generally, how is HCM typically diagnosed? Usually it is diagnosed after a long time of not being diagnosed. So that means the patient has a long history of his symptoms. And then at some stage, somebody looks at the ECG, somebody looks at echo and finds findings that are typical for HCM. So usually the first idea that this might be present is usually made in the echo lab. And are there any, you mentioned how it's genetic condition, are there any genetic tests that would potentially be done before going on to echo or is echo generally come sooner throughout the diagnosis process? So in most countries, I'm aware of, it's um, much easier to um, uh, receive an echocardiogram, an ECG, or a biomarker before you do genetic testing. There are no programs for routine screening for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So genetic testing is only done when there is a clinical suspicion that the patient has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But in case uh, the suspicion is there, it should be performed. And is there a role for other such techniques such as um, cardiac MRI, for example? Yes, clearly. Um, ECHO is the first imaging method of choice for patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But in certain uh, constellations, it would make sense to do a MRI scan, magnetic resonance imaging as well, for example, to clearly measure the wall thickness. Number two, to detect the extent of fibrosis um, in the heart that is not possible by echo alone. And also to measure certain aspects of outflow tract obstruction 
or after therapy for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, for example, myectomy or a TESH procedure, we would need an MRI to clearly define how successful the therapy was. So it can be used in parallel with echo. Yes, definitely. Yeah. But in most sorry, but in, in most centers it is much easier. Uh, there's a lower threshold to obtain an echocardiogram compared to an MRI. The costs are higher and um, the availability is not so great. So echo is the first imaging modality of choice. Let's move on to echo. So how, how might a physician use echocardiography to diagnose? obstructive HCM. So you're asking about obstructive HCM. So I think we should start how would a physician diagnose HCM okay. even without an obstruction. So the first obvious finding uh, that's a diagnosis that an experienced examiner in echocardiography will have within seconds, he will see that the wall thickness of the left ventricle is increased. If there's this clear diagnosis and clearly increased, that's easy to do, this diagnosis. But in case the patient has um, only a, like a borderline uh, hypertrophy of the left ventricle, it can be challenging to distinguish normal values from pathological values. So you should go in more detail. Maybe we can discuss the specialist things later. Let's go for the like obvious findings. The most obvious finding is an increased wall thickness. In most cases, it is located in the septum, in the intraventricular septum. But um, to make it more complicated, there are also forms of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy where you have an increased wall thickness, for example, in the apex of the of the left heart or in the mid-ventricular segments that can all be, they can be symmetric, it can be asymmetric. So we have a big pattern of different possibilities. And what deviation from the what you would expect from a healthy heart are should physicians be looking at when it comes to analyzing these images? There is consensus in the guidelines of the European and the American uh, cardiological societies that a wall thickness of more than 15 millimeters in the end diastole of the left ventricle is pathological and should be considered as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But clearly, 12 is the reference um, of for normal cohort. So we have 13 and 14 millimeters, which are somewhere in the gray zone. And clearly, a patient developing this disease can already be affected, for example, with 14 millimeters. And the second uh, important point is that measuring wall thickness can be tricky uh, because the heart is moving all the time. We have um, asymmetry that I mentioned before. And measuring um, in a moving object, which is asymmetric, wall thickness, it's not easy because wall thickness can be 17 in one place and 12 in another place. So we usually take the place with the largest extent of hypertrophy and take this for the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I understand. Um, it's sometimes said that subtle signs or artifacts on echocardiography can complicate diagnosis. How, how could a physician perhaps counteract this? So the physician who is doing this echo in HCM should be aware that you um, do all apical cut planes um, in order not to um, oversee this asymmetric hypertrophy. And secondly, you have to make sure that the patient has got has not got an outflow tract obstruction because once the patient develops outflow tract obstruction, then he's called 
HOCM, so it means hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. And maybe we can talk a little bit later of um, the different techniques that we have to diagnose outflow tract obstruction. Excellent. So, um, yeah, when might a physician use want to use echo with uh, provocation? Mm. So usually uh, we do an echo um, when the patient is lying at rest on our echo table. Uh, but the patients, as I mentioned before, usually have symptoms under physical um, um, exertion. So we have to provocate physical exercise, and this could be done either by a stress echo. Stress echo has the problem that the patient is moving on a treadmill, for example, and the image quality is getting worse. And one very elegant method to overcome this limitation is to perform a Valsalva maneuver. Valsalva maneuver means that the patient is closing mouth and nose and pressing um, very hard. And in this maneuver that takes about 10 seconds, um, we have to make sure that we measure the um, pressure gradient in the left ventricular outflow tract. And in case the patient has an obstruction or an HOCM, we will see a sh um, sharp increase in the pressure gradient in the outflow tract. And this is the definite diagnosis of HOCM. Just going back to the um, stress echo, what, what other challenges might um, a physician encounter when using this, um, this method? Another challenge would be that some patients um, who have got rhythm disturbances um, might develop, for example, atrial fibrillation or ventricular tachyarrhythmia when you put the, uh, the patient on a treadmill. And apart from the reduced image quality, the rhythm disturbances could also lead to misdiagnosis or underdiagnosis of the disease. So this is why in all the guidelines, it is recommended to start with a Valsalva maneuver. Why? Because it's cheap, it's for free, it's easy, and you have a good um, uh, diagnostic accuracy if you uh, provocate um, a Valsalva gradient. Wondering whether we can talk about um, left ventricular outflow trotrach obstruction? Yes. So what is the most appropriate um, echo technique for the, for the assessment of left ventricular outflow tract obstruction or LVOT? Mm. I would say that we have three techniques. The first easy technique is our own eyes. We have to look uh, at the outflow tract and you usually see clearly that this outflow tract, which is usually 20 millimeters of width, is reduced to, for example, five or six millimeters. You can see this clearly in the peristernal long axis. The second um, tool would be to apply um, Doppler echocardiography, and then you see a turbulent flow in the outflow tract. Depending on the echo machine that you use, you get a certain color for outflow tract obstruction in some machines it's green and some machines it's yellow but you can clearly see that you have a turbulent outflow and to quantify outflow tract obstruction we use valsalva maneuver or a stress echo um, as i have mentioned before yeah so one uh, very elegant method to um, diagnose um, HOCM is the so-called Brockenbro phenomenon. Brockenbro phenomenon is um, described as follows. The patient has got a ventricular ectopic beat, and then you get a post-exosystolic potentiation of the outflow tract uh, gradient. And in case the patient, and many patients with, with HCM, have got this ventricular 
uh, extrasystole, uh, you can then make the diagnosis much easier if this is present. So also check for ventricular ectopy and then perform a broken bro um, measurement. Wondering if you had uh, any any details from a, a patient case study that you could perhaps share controversially, of course, um, you know, uh, not, not using names, uh, which demonstrates uh, a challenging diagnosis using echo and how you mm. use your experience to get around it. Yeah. So first of all, um, one challenging case that we had recently was a patient who um, came in with a constellation of a myocardial infarction. Everything was there that we need for the diagnosis of a myocardial infarction. The patient had chest pain, the patient had um, ECG changes, and the patient had an elevated troponin. So three criteria for a myocardial infarction were present, and the patient was examined, and the coronary uh, vessels looked completely normal. And then we did an echo and we found that this patient had a severe um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, especially affecting the midventricular segments of the myocardium. So if you can imagine, if the midventricular myocardium is very thick, the um, kind of contraction of the left ventricle leads to the case that the patient kind of st strangulates uh, his own ventricle. And this um, leads to the development of a left ventricular aneurysm of the apical segments that this patient had. And we performed echo, but then we performed an MRI and we could see that the patient had already developed a scar in the apical myocardial segments without having a coronary artery disease. And this was really an astonishing or challenging case. And we know now from a study of the literature that up to 5% of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy have this constellation of midventricular obstruction with an apical aneurysm and even with a scar. So this is a rare case of HCM. So it is something that is complex and it's not, as I mentioned before, not so easy to diagnose sometimes, but you should always keep your eyes open to have this in the back of your mind that the patient might have um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And if you were to just summarize everything that we've spoken about today for the benefit of the physicians that are listening, that your fellow healthcare professionals, what are the kind of key points when using ECHO to diagnose um, HCM that you'd like them to take forward with them throughout their practice? That's a good point, George, because uh, I mentioned before that it's a challenge and usually uh, the most um obvious cause for left ventricular hypertrophy in Western countries is um, arterial hypertension. And a patient can have arterial hypertension, but you can have in the same patient on top hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So the presence of hypertension does not exclude hypertrophic cardiomyopathies. So this is, I think, a, a, a good take-home point. And you should always take left ventricular hypertrophy seriously even if it's only like borderline 14 millimeters and diastolic dimension or 15, take it seriously and make sure that the patient does not have HCM and always perform a Valsalva maneuver um, in the patient at the first examination to rule out hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. And always keep it in the back of your mind. It's not so seldom like you think. One out of 400, that's quite a number, I think. Higher than one may think, as you said earlier. Imagine an airplane, one person on each airplane, which you know it's not it's not all that rare. Um, Professor, was there any anything else that you would like to cover before we uh, conclude? 
Yeah, one important point maybe is that um, a patient might ask you, is it a severe disease? Do I have to die of the disease? And I think today we have to uh, tell the patients that we have uh, very good therapeutical approaches. We have classical therapies like um, septal reduction therapy performed by a cardiac surgeon. We have interventional techniques, septal branch ablation, for example. But in future, we will have uh, medications available that can reduce the outflow tract obstruction and um, uh, improve the patient's clinical status. And I think we are all in the field of heart failure looking forward um, to these new therapies that are available very soon for our patients in Europe. Professor Knabel, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. And that concludes today's discussion. Thank you to Professor Fabian Knabel for joining us today and sharing his insights around echocardiography for diagnosing HCM with our audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We release a new episode every Friday, as well as plenty of bonus episodes just like this one. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now. <laughs>